0: How many of you all feel very familiar with the book of Nahum? Yes! <laughs> no, I know. I was the same way. Like, I know I've read it, but, you know, I don't know if I've looked at it in various uh, Old Testament survey and overview type classes. But uh, one, of the, one of the joys of something like this is that it basically forces us into... Um, you know, the, the parts of the Bible where maybe the, the pages are a little bit stickier, um, a little less broken in, so um, we'll be looking at Nahum this morning. Uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we beg of you and your grace, uh, just a little extension of the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ and, and his mercy and his sacrifice and um, it's the wonder of his resurrection. Lord, help us to... Remember our, our need for you, even as we look at Nahum now, our, our need for just right thinking and right response and dependent living. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to, to look at your word and to be impacted by it, and we pray for the work of your spirit Lord, to be uh, moving amongst us in those ways for conviction and for edification, for just informing our minds and our hearts and our responses to life. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, you, can, you can open your Bible to Nahum if you want there. It is, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six back from Matthew. You know, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. See, I, I cheated and have the little tabs in my Bible. So I actually highly recommend it. It's really convenient. <laughs> but anyway, Nahum. Um, we're going to look at, uh, if you open there, we'll look at some uh, historical context real quick. The very first bo- uh, verse of Nahum says it's the oracle of Nineveh, all right? You remember the, the, the name Nineveh? We, we talked about that last week in Sunday school. So it says the oracle of Nineveh, which you could understand that to mean concerning, the oracle concerning Nineveh, the book, which is a unique title, all right, because it, this implies that it was written down, that it's more of a, a scroll or written work that was um, maybe passed around as an informative oracle. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. We don't know where Elkosh is, and we don't know much about Nahum other than the fact that he is the prophet who wrote this book. His name does uh, have, have ties to the Hebrew word for comfort. Okay? which is interesting because his book is all about condemnation, and yet his name is sourced in the word comfort. But when you realize that it's actually aimed towards Judah regarding Nineveh, then you can understand that there's a little bit of impact there with his name so that his, his writing is to be understood as a comfort to Judah concerning Nineveh. What we're going to find is that uh, the, the dating for the book of Nahum is, um, is around, if, if you look at the, the fun little graph timeline that I put on there, because Ben had this sweet color map that set the bar real high, and so I'm downgrading a little bit, I photocopied, mine's color, but yours is, yours is photocopied, and I think next week Myral says you guys get nothing, so you know. But, going, but if you look at the uh, if you look at the, the the timeline there, you can see he was prophesying around 650-ish, 655, 6 you know uh, 50 BC, and we we can understand that because Nineveh was destroyed. If you can see there in 612 BC, all right, and then um, in chapter three of Nineveh, verse eight. It is written that he says, are you better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile? And what he's referring there is to the destruction of a city in Egypt that, that uh, Assyria itself actually destroyed. And they destroyed them in 663 BC. So if you look at the chart there, you can kind of understand. Okay, so 663, that's the earliest it could have happened because he refers to the destruction of Noamon, which is Thebes. And then Nineveh was actually destroyed in 612. And, um, and that same city was also rebuilt in 654. So probably somewhere right around 655-ish, you know, between there and 660. You know, this is about as good of ballparking as you can get when it comes to how to date the book of Nahum. All right, so Manasseh would have likely been king uh, at this point in time. It's possible that it was... Post his, uh, his period of repentance because Assyria actually goes and captures Manasseh, drags him away with, with, uh, with hooks through his nose, and he experiences a, a period of repentance in Assyria and is brought back to Judah after that. And so it's possible that it was uh, something that happened in there. But this chart is helpful because it, it, it helps you see a little bit of the relationship of Assyria with Israel over the course of time. You know, and our, our nation has been in existence for what? Uh, 250 years, right? Right? Is that about right? Okay, good. It's like, man, check me. Almost that amount of time is how long Assyria and Israel have been in conflict. And Assyria has basically been a domineering, unpleasant force in the life of Israel. If you look all the way back before 822, Assyria receives tribute from Israel under Jehu. So even, even way back then, Assyria comes in, dominates Israel, and says, You owe us tribute. And they, they do it. And then later on, we see Jonah warns Nineveh and they repent. That's around 760. All right. And then a um, couple, uh, couple decades later, Assyria then receives tribute from Israel under Azariah. And so they are still the domineering presence, the, the, the force that uh, Israel is either dependent on um, in, in not good ways or they're actually subservient to them. Uh, Assyria then conquers Israel and places them under their thumb all the more. Around 702, Assyria invades Judah, okay, and, and prior to that they've actually just carried off the northern tribes. Um. So around 702, Assyria invades Judah under Hezekiah. They're repelled with heavy losses. If you remember, there was a famous 79-minute sermon given on those chapters right there where where Hezekiah, and anyway, the Assyrians experienced about 185,000 person loss by the miraculous deliverance of God. But a few decades later, they come back and they carry off King Manasseh And they're they're still under the thumb of Assyria. And then Nahum is prophesying regarding Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria in the midst of this time. And at the end, towards the end of this long string of difficult and troublesome and pain-filled and conflict-filled relationship. Alright, so that's a little bit of just the, the historical context of what we're dealing with and I'm, I'm thankful for um, for my brother Ben, my brother Ben Hyman Johnson who did a great job last week of just working through Jonah right because Jonah 4-2 is a highlight of the book of Jonah as he pointed out especially when contrasted with Jonah himself and his responses to the situation and to uh, Nineveh, Jonah 4-2 Jonah prayed to the Lord and said please Lord Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That's That's the money verse when it comes to the realization of who God is as revealed by the book of Jonah, especially since Jonah was such the opposite in terms of what he wanted for Assyria and for Nineveh. Nahum, though, would have been Jonah's favorite book if he was alive. It's the other side of the coin, as it were. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, it says this. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So Jonah 4, 2 is true, but Nahum 1, verse 2 is also true. All right, so... Richard Caldwell has a, a little commentary on Nahum. He's actually one of the TES campus pastors in Texas. and He writes this. He says, In a permissive relativistic culture, the God of Christianity is often portrayed as a permissive God who affirms each individual's moral judgments. Or in the case of those who are hateful toward any thought of God, he is slandered in ways that reveal a great ignorance of the Scriptures. What ties both groups together is that they are people who think they know something about the Christian God. What this means is that we cannot declare the gospel without a clear declaration of the true God. We must introduce people to the true God. Our starting place with sinners must not assume that because we might use the same vocabulary, we are operating with the same dictionary. To take it a step further, the frightening reality is that this misinformation campaign has not just had an impact outside the professing church. In fact, wrong ideas about God are seated in our pews every Sunday morning. It is not just the world outside the church that needs to be introduced to the true God. It is the, to the professing church that we need to say, here is your God, know him. In the study of Nahum, we come face to face with what I'm afraid is a strange God to many professing Christians. The God of Nahum is the God of the Bible, but is the God of Nahum your God? The God of Nahum is not just a God of love. He is a God of wrath. He is a jealous God, an avenging God, a thoroughly just God, and a God who never forgets when it comes to the matter of justice. He is a God who judges and disciplines his people by their enemies and then judges their enemies in due time. All right, so that's a, that's a helpful orientation as we consider Nahum some of the the overarching lessons that you'll see on the back of your handout include God God being faithful to dispense justice and you can see the same idea in Romans 12 we're going to see that God is sovereign over his timeline you can see the same idea in second Peter chapter 3 we're going to see that God has unmatched power and glory And you see the same idea in Isaiah 46. We're going to see that God cares for his people even in the midst of distress and trial and danger. We see the same idea in Psalm 23, verse 4. So those are are some of the overarching lessons that Nahum has to give to us. So let's dive into Nahum. We're going to walk through it. We'll make some notes as we go and then uh, we'll, we'll... talk about those lessons and some applications in our own lives considering as we come to know the true God of the Bible because God is the same today right yesterday today and forever he does not change and so the fullness of his character that we see in these situations is the fullness of his character of our God today so Nahum chapter 1 verse 1 the oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. he's going to move into an idea here where he draws illustrations from nature about God's power because think of the last time that you walked up to a mountain and said jump or think about the last time when the ocean fled from your presence or from the presence of any man right but here's what he says in verse 4 he rebukes the sea and makes it dry he dries up all the rivers Bashan and Carmel which are mountains wither the, mountains of Le- uh, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? There's a slice of God's character. Who can endure the burning of his anger? Another slice of his character. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Ah, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Remember Nahum's name, comfort? And how it was written to Judah to comfort them in the midst of giving the oracle concerning Nineveh? They would have read that. Verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood... He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, here he's talking concerning Nineveh. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink. They are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked Counselor, I think those, those ideas there, uh, you know, verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he'll make a complete end of it. One, of, from verse 11, from you is gone forth one who plotted evil. I think those are probably looking back actually to the, the time when they came against Hezekiah and the Rabshekah as, as the representative of Sennacherib was, was taunting Judah and saying, don't think that your God is going to be able to save you. And he was speaking in Hebrew in order to try to sow fear and discord amongst the people. And, and he's, he's devising plans to try to undermine Judah for the overthrow. And yet we all know how that turned out. God wipes out 185,000 of their, of their army. And Sennacherib goes back to Assyria because he hears about conflict there. And a couple decades later, he is killed as God prophesied uh, in second in Kings, and so I think I think this is just a, a looking back there. But in verse twelve, it says Thus says the Lord, even though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. And it seems as if God aims his voice towards Judah. He says, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. What hope and comfort there would have been for Judah in the midst of that. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, you're not really experiencing something. You're not, you know, every, everything is just not, not as bad as you might think it is or feel like it is. No, no, no. He says, look, I have afflicted you but I will afflict you no longer. I will, I will break his yoke bar. So he acknowledges the yoke bar that Assyria has laid upon Judah, but he says, I will break it from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. Then he reorients towards Nineveh. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. And this is, this is a, a really stinging condemnation and indictment especially in those days where uh, one, of, one of the crucial and vital ideas, desires, um, in terms of both kings and just people in general, was, was the per- perpetuation of their line, of their name, of their lineage. And so he's basically saying, you, you are completely finished. All that hope of, of an ongoing legacy and lineage is going to be gone. It says, I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. One of, the, one of the commentators named Elliot Johnson says this, Nineveh was never rebuilt. So complete was its destruction that when Xenophon passed by the site about 200 years later, he thought the mounds were the ruins of some other city. And Alexander the Great, fighting in a battle nearby, did not realize that he was near the ruins of Nineveh. So when God says, your name will no longer be perpetuated, I will prepare your grave, he meant it, and he did it. To completion. And then for the comfort of Judah, God looks back to them in verse 15. He says, behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. There's sweet echoes of Isaiah 52 and Romans 10 in that, 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 that there's, there's a herald standing on the mountain, proclaiming over the valley good news, peace. And he tells them to worship. He says, Celebrate your feasts, O Judah, pay your vows. For he, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Chapter 2, he then looks to Nineveh and he starts to, he starts to basically forewarn Nineveh and invite Nineveh to be aware of what's happening and in being aware of what's going to happen to prepare. All right, so this is, this is, <laughs> this is some divine... Mm, divine smack talk this is some divine taunting alright as God through the prophet looks at this world power who right at this point is probably at some of the height of their power full of pride Full of themselves, which again, if you look back in 2 Kings eighteen, is the way that Assyria conducted themselves towards um, towards Judah was saying, "Look at look at all these cities and all these kings that we've conquered. You're no better than them. But look at what we've done. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've done." And these are the people that God then go, He says, "Look here, here's here's some forewarning." All right, he says, "The one who scatters has come up against you." Here he's talking to Nineveh, so he says to Nineveh. Man the fortress. Right? Put your guard up. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. He says, go ahead and fortify yourselves. I have my plans. I will even tell you about them and you prepare. Verse 2. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. Like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. In verse 3, he looks at the attackers, at the, 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 the one who scatters. It says, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. Their chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly in the streets. This is looking ahead to the conquering, to the destruction, the overthrow of Nineveh in verse 4. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantlet is set up. That's like a siege machine of the old days. So they hurry to her wall. They set up their siege machine. Verse 6, the gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. And it's uh, interesting to note that Nineveh is actually set at the site of the confluence of three different rivers. One that flows along it, and two that flow uh, actually through the city. Amardine, who's a commentator on on names, says this brief verse, which is just five Hebrew words, marks a decisive turning point in the campaign against Nineveh as the main line of defense is broken because they've set up their siege machine and they've overcome the wall and the heart of the city is destroyed. The noun, river... The, the gates of the rivers is plural in Hebrew, and in fact, Nineveh lay at the confluence of three rivers. The Tigris flowed close to its walls, and two tributaries, the Kosar and the Tabiltu, passed through the city itself. So virtually all of Nineveh's fifteen gates gave access also to one of these rivers, or to a canal derived from them, thus being designated gates of the rivers. Alternatively, the gates are those controlling the flow of the rivers rather than giving access to the city. All three rivers were capable of rising to flood proportions when swollen by rain and the inscriptions of Sennacherib repeatedly describe both the undermining effects of the flood on the walls and the buildings and the extensive damage or sluicing operations required to correct the problems. It's possible, therefore, that the river gates viewed here are those regulating the flow of water through one or more of these dams, indeed the uh, Akkadian term, gate of the river, was applied to a canal gate by Sennacherib. And so, when thrown open by the enemy, who already controlled the suburbs where they were situated, the gates would release a a deluge of water as a result of which the palace collapses. The Assyrians had flooded other cities themselves. It's fitting that their own city, corrupt and full of violence, should perish in the same manner. The verb moog means to melt. Is literal usage is primarily of dissolution by water, providing further corroboration for the preceding interpretation. All that to say that when God said the gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved, there's a very clear awareness of the situation of Nineveh, that there's these, these gates that hold the river water back, And that the the, the oncoming army probably even utilized those to then undermine the integrity of the inner wall that we're going to talk about, and even the the walls of the palace itself for the sake of crumbling those walls there. So the the familiarity and the awareness that God has in, in what He speaks to Nahum is striking. He says, Fortify your walls, prepare the guard, get ready. Here's my strategy. He says, verse 7, It is fixed. She, I think that's just referring to Nineveh, is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaidens are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, like lots of richness, life-giving, uh, thriving in, in, in just their, their, their life, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! No one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Hundreds of years of plundering and pillaging that Assyria did has been stockpiled in Nineveh. It's the capital city. It's where the king and his palace sit. And so the, the wealth would have just been opulent. And, and and God is saying the uh, the oncoming enemy will plunder the silver and plunder the gold. And in verse ten, he says, "She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale." And here he kind of pokes his finger right in the in the chest of the Assyrians and says, "Where is the den of the lions?" And the feeding place of the young lions where the lion, the lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them. This is, this is Nineveh in the day, in the height of their power. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. And yet everything that God had said is going to come about even with this forewarning that he says verse 13 is striking behold I am against you declares the Lord of hosts that's a very deliberate term the Lord of hosts alright and this is where I appreciate the way Richard Caldwell set up his, his commentary is because if there's any semblance of thought that the God of the Bible is a passive or weak or incapable or soft God only? It's not true. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of armies. And he sets himself against actively aggressively with forethought with intention he sets himself against Nineveh and says I will burn up her chariots and smoke and a sword will devour your young lions I will cut off your prey from the land and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard as the that's the the the, the final declaration of what he intends and then chapter 3 basically begins a description of Nineveh and her crimes. Kind of saying, God, like God saying, hey, here, here is what I intend. Here is what I have planned. And here's why. Here's the evidence warranting what I am about to bring about. Look at chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city. Completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. This is Nineveh. The noise of the whip noise of the rattling of the wheel they always have galloping horses and bounding chariots their horsemen charging swords flashing spears gleaming many slain a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies can you even hear in the language right there how it's just like he's just stacking up terms those are not those are not you know kind of like full sentences with lots of descriptors and subject and verb and and adjectives it's just it's just boom Uh, noise of the whip noise of the rattling of the wheel galloping horses bounding chariots horsemen charging swords flashing spears gleaming many slain a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies they stumble over the dead bodies that's Nineveh all because of the many harlotries of the harlot the charming one the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries here it is again verse 5 behold I am against you Declares the Lord of Hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and show to the nations your nakedness, and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you, and make you vile, and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you, and say, "Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you?" And then you remember what what uh, the Rabshakeh did to judah when they were surrounding them in the turn in the times of manasseh and they said are you better than these cities over here and these kings over here that we have already overthrown god throws that back in nineveh's face and he says in verse 8 are you better than noamon which is a city that assyria herself had overthrown are you better than noamon which was situated by the waters of the nile with water surrounding her whose rampart was the sea whose wall consisted of the sea What are you going to do to a wall made of sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers, yet... Okay, so that was a city that was confident, right? Yet, she became an exile. She went into captivity... Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men and all her great men were bound with fetters. And so that God then says in verse 11, to Nineveh, just like them, just like you brought upon them, God says, you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. Here's what you need to put in your mind when I read the word fortifications. Fortifications. All right. They had an inner wall, 100 feet high, Okay, with room enough for three chariots next to each other to ride around the wall. That's a big wall. Outside of that wall was a moat, 50 feet deep, 150 feet wide. That's a big moat. And then there was an outer wall outside of that, around the, around the, around the city and then suburbs kind of outside of that. But listen to what he says about all of that. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit, ripe as in ready for the picking. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. All these just impermeable defenses that they were putting their confidence in is just compared to walking along. It's mm, a good looking fig. Just like that. Okay, ladies, don't be offended. But verse thirteen, God then says, "Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars." Then he says again. He says, "Go, go ahead. Prepare." Verse fourteen. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Get ready. Strengthen your fortifications. Make your walls bigger and stronger. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. See, they didn't have the concrete machines, right? So they're out in, the, in, the, in the, the, the big forms and in the pits, treading out the mortar to make their walls bigger and stronger. And yet, verse 15, there fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. Make preparations. Make preparations. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? And that's the end. There is no invitation to repentance. There is no Jonah addendum to this. This is a condemnation from God to obstinate evil from the God who is indignant towards evil from the God who has wrath aimed towards evil from the God who is angry about evil and this is on a personal level if you're a sinner and you have not repented if you have not repented of those sins and placed your faith in Jesus, His work, the cross that that saves you and the resurrection that, that puts you into, into all the blessings that are in Ephesians 2 that we're studying. If you have not repented of those sins, then that anger and that indignation and that wrath is aimed at you individually. But it's also on a corporate level. The evil in the world... God has feelings about and they're strong feelings they're not passive feelings so remember the overarching lessons that we draw God is faithful to dispense justice God is sovereign over his timeline Okay, we, saw, we see that even in just this, this chart of Assyria and Israel and their relationship. Even here, jo- uh, Nahum prophesied probably 650, And depending on where you take that, you know, uh, almost 50 years later is when it comes to pass. The destruction of Nineveh. And yet, God is faithful and God is sovereign. God has unmatched power and glory unmatched, which is why he says to the greatest human force in the planet at that time, go ahead, make your preparations, strengthen your walls, deepen your moats, whatever you want to do, multiply your people, build your armies. But God is unmatched in power and glory, and God cares for his people, even in distress and trial and danger. Did you hear that, that, uh, that covenant focus? there in, um, in chapter 2 for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel this is driving some of this this wrath and indignation is a care for his people and the fact that he's made a promise to his people and he wishes to carry it about and he has used Assyria to discipline his people and yet he's still faithful to his promise to those people and, 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 and just because Assyria was his tool to them doesn't mean that God then says okay you get a pass on your evil mm-mm faithfulness to his people condemnation of evil same God the fullness of his character in these things and so we want to take just a few minutes here and consider the impact for today the first being this we need to remember the greatness of God and his perspective of time when we look at the news that's all around us when we consider our own lives we need to remember the greatness of God The fact that he sits on his throne in the heavens and he uses the earth as a footstool for his feet kind of greatness. And his perspective of time. Peter says that with the Lord a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. That's his perspective towards time. That's not our perspective of time. We have a very different perspective of time. But that's not the ruling perspective. That's not the defining perspective. And so we need to ask ourselves in the midst of any situation that we come across, who is in charge? Is the president really in charge? On a certain human level, yes. But not over and against or in spite of or or in any way that undermines God and his in-chargeness. Right? Right? Who really, here's another question, who really knows better what needs to happen and when it needs to happen? Is that me or is that God? I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I often tend to think that I have a better plan and a better awareness of when that plan needs to actually be implemented. It's probably just me. God knows better. He does. He does. And even though he prophesied this, he said, you know what? It's best for this to wait 50 years before it comes to pass. So we have to remember, though, his perspective of time. We have to remember that God knows better. He knows what needs to happen and when. And we need to remember that nothing can stop him. And so when our lives and our responses and our anxiety betray those truths, we need to repent of that smearing of God's character because of our own heart and our responses we need to repent of that and re-anchor ourselves in a full awareness of the character of our God number two impact for today look stay on mission as you learn to wait and again if you're like me you're bad at waiting but we all need to get better at waiting and as we wait right 50 years they had to wait as they wait upon the character of God to do what he has said he will do as we wait for Jesus to come back to set up his kingdom when all evil and, and, and then to bring in eternity when all evil will be accounted for. As we wait, are you waiting for that? Waiting as in, as in anticipating, yearning. As we wait, we need to stay on mission, we need to spread the gospel. We need to be gospel spreaders. We need to do personal justice. Treat those around you like God tells you. I believe Pastor Meyerl's doctoral dissertation is on the, the ethical implications of eschatology, i.e., as you wait, do what God says. There you go. Same thing with personal ethics. Make the right decisions. Live under the gaze of God. And then have dependent petitions on the macro scale. Okay? Pray regarding the things in the world that seem just too big and out of control. Pray. Beseech the God who sits on his throne, who has wrath at evil and who lives for his glory and will bring that about in his time. We need to live in the balanced reality of fallenness and salvation as well. What are your expectations of life? Are you expecting, am I expecting, are we expecting comfort? Are we expecting the improvement of humanity? That things are going to get better and better and better and we're going to be able to bring, uh, bring about world peace and, 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 and kindness to all and those types of things. The reality of fallenness and sin should create different expectations in us and it should create... Responses of hope and assurance in the midst of hardship, as well. We need to learn to trust God in the fullness of His character as each situation requires. And there's a spectrum here, right? I don't know if you've been reading the news or watching. I'm assuming that you have. But there is there is strife, and there's turmoil, and there's evil, and there's unkindness from from the situation in Afghanistan uh, of just militaristic uh, domineering and, and 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 killing and bombing to then there's also the situation in Cuba where the government is is withholding um, pay and withholding food and there's riots and there's protests so there's everything on that kind of a level and the spectrum that we need to learn to trust in God and the fullness of his character there's that side of the spectrum and then there's also the spectrum of you and your personal individual life my life when a personal injustice is done against us I know of someone in our church who had their car stolen this week. You know what? God cares. I know of a person who lost their job needlessly and and, and without reason recently. You know what? God cares. Or there's even worse personal attacks that, that happen. And through it all, we need to remember that God is gracious compassionate, slow to anger, that he's abundant in loving kindness and relents concerning calamity. And we need to thank God for that, especially as it is given to us and it's applied to us in our own salvation. But as those things happen, as we watch what happens in the world and as we watch what happens to us individually, the injustice is done and the evil done, we also need to remember that he is avenging, he's wrathful, he's great in power, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. By no means. Whether it's the guilty individual, the guilty nation, the guilty subgroup, the guilty leadership team, whatever, he will by no means leave them unpunished. And so we trust that. We find rest in that. We cling to that and we focus on what God has given you to do in this life. Leave that to God and live your life the way that he has said Because of who God is. Richard Caldwell writes this. He says, To trust in the God of the Bible is not to deny reality. It is to acknowledge his sovereignty over all realities. We are not a people who have to stick our heads in the sand to be able to cope. We are a people who lift up our eyes and look to the one who is in control of all things and we find our rest in him this of course requires that we are really one of his people and that we are trusting in him let's pray